Chapter Eighteen, Part One of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret S. Bayat. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume One by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter Eighteen, Part One. Settlement in Cincinnati. The Dred Scott Decision. Chief Justice Taney, Stanley Matthews, Honorable Alfonso Taft, Literary Club, Theatres, Visit of the Prince, now Edward the Seventh, Fanny Kemble, Relics of the Visionaries, Antioch College, Honorable Horace Mann, Memnona, The Village Modern Times, Germans in Cincinnati, August Willich, Judge Stallo, My First Book, Ministry, Sacrament, Emerson in Cincinnati, Archbishop Purcell, Lane Seminary. I entered on my ministry in Cincinnati, First Congregational Church, in November 1856. Cincinnati was full of excitement because of the presidential campaign in which slavery and freedom had for the first time confronted each other. My first discourse was given on November ninth, the first Sunday after the election of Buchanan, a bitter disappointment to us all. My discourse, printed by the congregation, bore the title, Virtue versus Defeat, the text being, Add to your faith virtue. On March 6, 1857, two days after the inauguration of President Buchanan, the Supreme Court gave its famous decision in the case of the Negro Dred Scott. The decision was summed up popularly in the phrase, Black men have no rights, which white men are bound to respect. The decision was given by Chief Justice Taney, sprung from an old Maryland family, and it suited the Republicans that the odious sentiment should be ascribed to him and the consenting justices personally, the new party being founded on an opposite interpretation of the Constitution. But the Chief Justice had simply interpreted the constitutional concessions to slavery by a historical reference to the ideas prevailing at the time when the Constitution was framed concerning the black race, which for more than a century had been regarded as beings of an inferior order, politically and socially having no rights which white men were bound to respect. The decision did not applaud this sentiment of the colonies, but it was circulated in vast quantities throughout the South as a political document. Cincinnati was renowned for its jurists. Among these were Judge Hoadley, afterwards Governor of Ohio, Alfonso Taft, afterwards U.S. Attorney-General, and Stanley Matthews, afterwards of the U.S. Supreme Court. Hoadley and Matthews had been Democrats, but strongly anti-slavery. Hoadley separated him from the Democratic Party on account of its pro-slavery proclivities, but Matthews was appointed U.S. District Attorney by Buchanan, and was as a lost leader. Judge Hoadley and Alfonso Taft were active members of my society. I was intimate with them and their families. Neither of these learned men regarded the Dred Scott decision as legally sound, 
and I was guided by them. Later studies led me to the conclusion that though the decision rightly interpreted the bearing on slavery of the concessions made to it in the Constitution, these were not due to considerations of Negro inferiority, but that the majority of the Convention of 1787, while anti-slavery, were forced by the overwhelming necessity of forming a union for defense to yield to South Carolina and Georgia, which refused to enter unless those concessions were made. But the decision, which made slavery virtually the law of the land, was as the trump of judgment day. Thousands of Negroes in the northern states broke up their homes and fled to Canada, many of these being from southern Ohio, so accessible to kidnappers. Days of judgment are prolific of misjudgments. The much-abused Chief Justice Taney gained his first fame at the bar by defending, in 1811, the most brilliant Methodist preacher in Maryland, Jacob Gruber, arrested for denunciations of slavery likely to incite insurrections. In his argument, Taney, aged thirty-four, declared slavery a blot on our national character. And probably he believed the same when he held up in the Supreme Court a mirror that revealed the vastness and blackness of the blot, not to be effaced by smashing the mirror. In Cincinnati the same kind of history was repeated in the case of our brilliant young lawyer Stanley Matthews, whose Quaker ancestor in Virginia had got into some trouble like that of Gruber in Maryland by his hostility to slavery. Stanley came to Cincinnati from Kentucky and edited a vigorous anti-slavery paper, the Cincinnati Herald, which contributed largely to make the thinking people hostile to slavery in that very community where, as U.S. District Attorney, he was compelled to sustain the decrees of the slave power at Washington. Among these was the fugitive slave law, which Matthews had repeatedly violated. Cincinnati had in the house of Levi Coffin, a Quaker, the southmost station of the Underground Railway, by which fugitive slaves were expedited to Canada, and in this work Matthews had assisted. But not long after his appointment by the President, a tragical case occurred. A young journalist named Connolly had concealed in his room a family of Negroes escaped from Kentucky, and in the attempt to recover them a Kentuckian was killed. Stanley Matthews had to prosecute Connolly. It was the first speech I ever heard from him, and although it was dreadful to see a grand man out of his place, his candor and his pain drew me to him. I, too, was of southern birth, and knew the temptations of a convert. During the trial the Quaker Levi Coffin was examined, and, in answer to a question about a certain room for hiding fugitives, he said, "'Thee must remember all about it, friend Matthews.' I was not present when this was said, but was told that Levi Coffin's answer raised much laughter, and that Stanley Matthews blushed. By some instinct, I refrained from attacking Matthews. He was, I felt, a fine man in eclipse, and would shine out again, as he did. I do not remember meeting him personally in Cincinnati, but when I met him after, he became a justice of the Supreme Court, 
he was very cordial and assisted me in my life of Randolph. Among the changes of those times in Cincinnati, the most remarkable, perhaps, was that of Alfonso Taft. He was by temperament conservative, also unambitious, finding his happiness in his family and his studies. He was a fairly typical Massachusetts man, and a kinsman of Emerson, whom he did not know but resembled in countenance. Alfonso Taft was reluctantly drawn into public life. He felt the aggressions of slavery in Kansas, and the Dred Scott decision as a summons to his conscience to bear his part in saving liberty. Footnote. Alfonso Taft was so preeminently a man of peace, abhorrent of war, that when President Grant appointed him Secretary of War, it excited merriment in Cincinnati, and fables were invented about him. It was said that one day when the President called at his office and asked how affairs were getting on, the Secretary shook his head and said that there were underhand dealings. Grant, being alarmed and demanding particulars, Secretary Taft showed him a bill just sent in by officers, among the items being considerable amounts for grape and shell. "'I saw through it at once,' said the Secretary. "'It is the disguise of carousals. Grape, that is champagne. Shell, oysters on the shell, crabs, etc.' End of footnote. A sermon given soon after my settlement in Cincinnati, text, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, opens with a legend which I ascribed to a father of the desert, who daily gave alms to the poor at the convent gate. In his cell Christ appeared to him with face and attitude accordant with church traditions, and indistinct. Sometimes he doubted if it was there, then it would glow a little. As he gazed with rapture, the bell sounded the hour when the needy would await their alms at the gate. But how could he leave the one heavenly vision of his lifetime? Yet he could not keep out of his thoughts images of the sufferers, and bade the Christ vision farewell with tears. When he had relieved the haggard men, women, and children, it was night. But as he was about to strike a light, his cell was filled with a celestial brightness, and there stood the form clear as the sun, no longer like the church pictures, but with a tender smile and eyes bent on him. And as he fell before the stupendous vision, the Divine One lifted him and said, Hadst thou not gone, I had gone indeed. The legend occupies two pages of the discourse on the minister in my Tracts for Today, January 1858. I cannot discover whether it has any ancient basis, or was my own invention. It marked the period when, following my Methodist Messiah, the Unitarian Christ of Cambridge professors was replaced by a living human Jesus learned at the feet of poor blacks. The tale pleased my people, and I condensed it in a sermon prepared for Nahant. Footnote. I was a guest of the Longfellows at Nahant and the poet probably regarded the fable as a genuine monastic legend, for it afterwards appeared in his Tales of a Wayside Inn, with the title The Legend Beautiful. I would indeed be gratified to know that any legend exalting service to man above worship of God exists in Catholic hagiology.
the longing for some such story is shown in benjamin kidd's description of the vision of sir launfal a pure invention of lowell as always the typical legend of the church my belief is that my story of the monk also used by wendell phillips who was in my audience at nahant was a coinage out of my own experience there was however in longfellow's poem no use made of what was to me an important feature of the fable namely the increased brightness and reality of the figure of jesus after the monk had ministered to the needy End of footnote. cincinnati was the most cultivated of the western cities a third of the population being german there were societies devoted to music and in that art the city was ahead of all others in america except boston there was a fine orchestra which gave symphony concerts and a saint cecilia verein which sang classical pieces rarely heard elsewhere there was an admirable literary club which met every week to converse and regale itself with squibs recitations cigars and catawba wine to it belonged young men who afterwards became eminent figures in the world rutherford hayes president of the united states Noyes a distinguished general and minister to France, A. R. Spofford, librarian of Congress, Judge Stallow, minister to Italy, Judge James, Judge Manning Force, and others. There was a good city library with a lyceum that had courses of lectures during the winter and enabled us to listen to the most famous public teachers. Emerson, Holmes, Agassiz, H. W. Beecher, Wendell Phillips had not yet been superseded in Western halls by vaudeville shows. There was a grand opera house, and we had annually several weeks of opera or operatic concerts. I remember Patty singing there in a troupe when she was a small girl. There were two good theaters, the National and Woods. The elder Southern acted at Woods when he was as yet unknown to fame and I remember well the uproarious laughter he excited as the petty thief, the kinchin, in Buckstone's Flowers of the Forest. Footnote. In after years, I knew Southern well in London. He remembered his early visits to Cincinnati, and wrote down for me the little speech of the kinchin after he was caught. "'Everyone's against me. A svel general he goes hint to a henemy's country, and kills every one he meets, and burns their villages, and they cover him with stars, and blows a trumpet for him. I just call her a hen or a handkerchief. They blows no trumpet for me. They vips me, and gives me handcuffs to carry. It is shameful it is. It quite hurts my feelings. End of footnote. There were fair stock companies at both theatres, and they played good English comedies and melodrama. Society in Cincinnati was gay. There were picnics, dances, charade actings, tableau. The masquerade balls were as brilliant as those of Europe. The city was celebrated for its beautiful ladies, and they knew how to dress well. When the young prince, now King of England, was visiting American cities, it was announced that he could dance only with ladies selected for him. In many places the ladies appointed for this honor were those of kindred of high official rank. 
some wag estimated that the collective ages of the prince's partners in one city was nine hundred in cincinnati the committee decided that at the ball in pike's opera house partners for the prince should be selected with reference to their beauty this of course was fatal to the committeemen who in a city of over two hundred thousand had to decide which were the eight or ten most beautiful ladies and it is to be hoped that the prince appreciated the self-sacrifice which gave him a succession of charming partners my bride and i danced in one of the stage quadrilles near him and i remarked the pleasure with which he looked on the vast array of beauties unfortunately the first young lady with whom the prince attempted to waltz could not conform with his steps nor he with hers they had been taught different styles and after that the ladies assigned for waltzes with him had the satisfaction of conversing with the blond and boyish prince he was affable and so were the gentlemen with him the duke of newcastle said to a group of gentlemen who would have thought that you republicans could find pleasure in the sight of royalty ah sir replied one we do not live close enough to royalty to see its faults at that time the dress-coat and white cravat were not fully in fashion in any american city except for bridegrooms and groomsmen an english correspondent who travelled with the prince's suite remarked in a published letter the absence of evening dress among men at our ball i believe it was the perusal of such criticisms that established the present fashion in america where the evening dress is now rather more de rigueur than in england into all the literary and artistic movements in cincinnati i threw myself with ardor i was adopted in the clubs and wrote criticisms of the classical concerts the picture exhibitions the operas and plays though my criticisms were anonymous it became well known who wrote them especially after some of my interpretations of beethoven's symphonies were sharply handled by a writer whose judgments in such matters had previously been final in cincinnati i found myself for the first time able to indulge my passion for the drama although at cambridge i sometimes trudged over to boston to enjoy the plays the opportunities were barely enough to appetize me in washington the theatre was poor but in cincinnati i attended the theatre so much as to excite remark a dancing and theatre-going preacher was previously unknown there puritanism was well represented among the early settlers in cincinnati mrs trollope the english author who went to cincinnati in eighteen twenty eight and resided there two years trolloped the place in her book on america on account of its provincialism her satire being keen on the horror excited by the performances of two french figurants who visited the city cincinnati had got fairly over all that but it was still expected of religious ministers to frown on the theatre regarding that institution as one of the most important for the culture of the community i gave a discourse on this subject june seventh eighteen fifty seven comparing the clerical enemies of the theatre to jonah demanding the destruction of nineveh the subject of my discourse having been as usual announced in the papers a large audience came 
it was said that every actor and manager was present. The discourse was published in pamphlet form and widely circulated. I became thenceforth a sort of chaplain to the actors, conducting their marriages and funerals, and whenever I attended any theatre I was invited into a private box. After my marriage, to a member of my congregation, the actors and dancers were occasionally entertained in our house. But the most important response received was a letter from my mother stating that the pamphlet on the theatre had been read aloud in the family by my father, who on closing it said, I am not prepared to object to one word in it. Under the signature of Optimist, I wrote four letters on art for a leading paper, calling attention to the fine or faulty characteristics of our actors. The originality and self-restraint of Matilda Heron, the delicious fun of Davidge in farce, the melodramatic skill of our frequent visitors, Mr. and Mrs. Conway, no relations of mine, were discussed, and one letter was a moral defense of the ballet. In the letter on tragedy I find a paragraph about Rachel, seen in New York. Rachel created more enthusiasm in an audience than any other person I have ever seen on the stage. She has an ever-revolving electric generator, and each individual sat with the wires in his hand. But her art of arts was to seize on little groups of people about the house, look straight into their eyes plaintively, until she awoke for herself, personally, the sisterhood of each woman and the knighthood of each man. I say personally, for Rachel had no existence outside of the character she was personating. She was, as a sheathed sword, never drawn out but by some hand, and only great, as the hand which wielded her was great. She made pain a pleasure. One longed to suffer after seeing her in a tragedy. One of the most beautiful things I ever saw on the stage was a morality brought to Cincinnati by the English actress Mrs. Conway, the prodigal son. As the prodigal she proved herself a true artist, especially in the return scene, where her flesh was visible in places through the tatters. It would be ungrateful not to mention Murdoch, the first scholarly interpreter of leading characters of Shakespeare's comedies I ever saw, and Hackett, whose admirable Falstaff was lionized through the country as Lord Dundreary was later. By the way, Southern told me that in Our American Cousin only a few words were originally assigned to Dundreary, and that the character was cumulatively created by his gags. Fanny Kemble, who I used to meet at the house of the Longfellows, gave her readings in Cincinnati. In our talks she surprised me by the sharpness with which she opposed my claims for the theatre as a profession. When I alluded to the fame of the Kembles, she pronounced the profession suitable enough for men, but not for women. It was, she said, a life of ostentation, necessitating display of costume and person inconsistent with fine feminine qualities, and so forth. In vain I spoke of actresses well known in Cincinnati society, Julia Dean, Charlotte Cushman, Anna Cora Mowat, Mrs. Ritchie, who wrote such an attractive book about stage life. 
Fanny Kemble was irreconcilable. On my part I could not see any great difference between the career of those ladies and that of the dramatic reciter, and concluded that Fanny Kemble had been somewhat soured by her unhappy marriage with a southern planter, also by the gossip about her. When I asked her if she had seen a certain article on one of her readings, she said, I never read the papers, being liable to find in them my own name. At Cincinnati I seemed for the first time to know something of all America. Our city was popularly styled the Queen of the West, but a Paul might have named it the Athens of the West, for every new thing found headquarters there. The edifice, the Bazaar, which Mrs. Trollope erected there thirty years before for encouraging the employment of women as shopkeepers, then unknown, after being used successively as a dancing school, an eclectic medical college, and a hydropathic establishment, had become a female medical college. It was the home of varieties of dreamers and reformers, until it housed convalescent federal soldiers during the Civil War. The presiding genius of the bazaar was a certain Dr. Curtis, an idealist poetically related to the quaint house whose wide stairway mounting from the threshold to the last story so many visions had ascended. I sincerely believe, wrote Mrs. Trollope, that if a fire-worshipper or an Indian Brahmin were to come to the United States and could preach and pray in English, he would not be long without a respectable congregation. Her Cincinnati edifice was always for me the symbol of a living fire-worship more consuming than she imagined. The West was hospitable to every new creed or social experiment, while its practical necessities furnished the severest test of values. One after another the pilgrims had come. French colonists of the Scioto and the Miami, when the nation was founded, George Rapp, the shoemaker of Württemberg, with his company of harmonists, Robert Owen and his new harmonists in 1823, and Fanny Wright, 1825, who colonized free Negroes on two thousand acres in Tennessee to prove them capable of civilization. The only experiment that failed through persecution was that of Fanny Wright to help the victim race. The others failed by reason of the actual conditions of the West, but remnants of all of them had found some nest in Cincinnati. An attractive German lady had in her drawing-room a portrait of George Rapp, who died in 1847, surrounded with evergreen, as a kind of shrine. She had been brought over with the Rappites in childhood, and cherished the remembrance of that gentle soul, training her children in his spirit. From her, and from some who had known Robert Owen, and many who had known the brilliant Fanny Wright, I learned much about them all. They were all liberal people, rarely able to conform with the creeds and usages around them. Current fiction was pale for me beside the narratives gathered from these sweet visionaries who were still following the dreams of their youth. I there read for the first time Fanny Wright's book, a few days in Athens, and some of the addresses which charmed large audiences in Cincinnati. 
many a time have i joined in the pilgrimage to her tomb in the cemetery near cincinnati at the time an experiment had begun at yellow springs which interested me deeply co-education of young men and women the sect called christians had built a college there naming it antioch but their enterprise having failed the building was purchased by the Unitarians and the institution placed under the Honorable Horace Mann. Horace Mann was the most eminent educator who has ever appeared in the United States, and his reports and writings, and his life written by his widow, constitute an important chapter in educational history. Mrs. Mann was a sister of Mrs. Nathaniel Hawthorne and Miss Elizabeth Peabody. Early in 1858 I visited Yellow Springs, stopping at its one inn, in which the only other guest was a beautiful woman, and one of rare intellectual power. She was the only one left of Memnona, a community which had built the house converted to an inn, and gave me useful information about Memnona. The glen nearby and the warm morning invited me to a stroll beside the clear brook which flows with frequent cascades through a mile of green banks and wild flowers suddenly i came upon a troop of young ladies each carrying a book and a botanical box one of them rebecca shepherd afterwards mrs haven putnam i had met she introduced me to the professor a handsome lady who invited me to participate in their exercises. The glen was their recitation room in spring for botany and geology. I gained from the lady professor, married, assurances of the refining influences of coeducation on both male and female students. No scandal had ever been heard of. The young ladies had weekly receptions in their separate residence building, and I had the good fortune to be present at one of them. There was excellent music and theatricals, and the presence of the professors did not at all interfere with the freedom and enjoyment of the young people. End of chapter 18, part 1